a guy sitting at the bar, and uh, he's, he's got a scotch in front of him. He's sitting there, and uh, uh, he's all lost in his thoughts. And this big biker walks up and takes the scotch and drinks it down and said, you got a problem with this? And the guy goes, no, man, I don't got no problem. I'm just, I'm just sitting here, man. You know, I went to work this morning and found out I'd lost my job. And I go home, and my wife left a note. She'd gone left with the kid and, and, and the dog. And my doctor calls me and said, I got this serious illness. So I just put the cyanide in my drink when you walked up. <laughs> but enough about me. How's your day going? <laughs> Sitting here in Las Vegas with the, the wonderful Luxor Hotel right behind us, um, sitting with Sonny Charles, who has done his time in Vegas and Lake Tahoe. Um, he's had hit singles in the past, and he's also sang with, with Steve Miller Band, and he's been kind enough to join me for a little chat about his life. Thank you for being here, Sonny. Hey, it's my pleasure. So, Sonny, let's begin at the very beginning and, and tell me a little bit about where you come from, a little bit about your family? My beginning was, um, my family was in Arkansas. Okay. Blytheville, Arkansas is the, what my birth certificate says. Mm -hmm. uh, 1940. Uh, sharecroppers. You know, we had two mules. Right. And a hundred and something acres. And, and I had six sisters. I was the youngest. And um, we did cotton. And it... The whole thing was about doing 160 acres of cotton. And uh, it was very, very uh, uh, racially, it was very segregated back in those days. Really segregated back in those days. Uh, but living during that time, you didn't really notice it because that's the way it was. Mm -hmm. So you didn't question it and you didn't feel, as a child, I didn't feel bad about it because that's all I know. It was the way it was. But anyway, uh, we did that, you know, we we did the sharecropping thing and, and uh, I went to a one-room uh, school. I learned my first four years in school was in a church. Mm -hmm. A high school girl taught all eight grades. We would sit in the in the church, first grade in the first row, second grade, second row, and we went all the way back like this. Right. This high school girl taught us all our numbers, taught us how to, to read, right we didn't have books to take home so she would make it up herself she didn't have printing machines so she would write out homework her mathematic homework and all that kind of stuff herself overnight i mean it was an amazing job somebody should find one of those people and see what yeah really what ticks with them but she did a great job because i learned to read and write and 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 we call it reading, writing, and arithmetic, the three R's. Mm -hmm. And that's what they called it back then. <laughs> but but from that, you know, uh, I started singing because I was, we would have a wagon. We pulled a wagon out into the field. All of my sisters were older than me and my dad, and they would go out and they would be working the field and leave me on the wagon. Well, that was back during the time when Louis, Louis Jordan mm -hmm. was, was doing his stuff. I was... And we used to see the sepia films, the little right. shorts that he would make, Saturday Night Fish Fry and all those things. And, and so where would you see that? Okay, here's the way it was. They would pull a, would put a tent up 
and some people would come there and there would be a tent and there would be some chairs, but most of the time people would sit on the floor or stand and they'd have a projector and they'd show a movie and all the black folks would be in the tent and we'd watch the movie. And, and it was really popular, we would do that. And maybe about once every, maybe a couple of times a month, there'd be movies like that. And then we'd go to town, uh, we would go in, into, into town on the weekends, my dad would take us and we'd go to the movies for a nickel, you know, and, uh, and we had to sit upstairs, mm-hmm. you know, uh, had a separate interest and all that kind of stuff, you know, and, and, uh, but like I say, it was no big deal at the time because that's just where it was. And so, uh, but seeing the Louis Jordan stuff really made me, it, it just, I really loved it. What do you think it was about it that, that caught your Because attention? he was so entertaining. I mean, it was, in, it was entertaining and the music was good. Mm-hmm. Sort of, uh, because he was a great sax player. Mm-hmm. He was a good saxophone player. And so it was, it was sort of R&B jazzy thing, but it just worked. It just worked. I mean, and he had a popular side too. And he had that open the door, Richard, open the door and let me in. Yeah. Uh, it was just funny stuff. Yeah. And great song, like great songs. Yeah. Yeah. And so my family would be working the fields and I would stand on the wagon and I would sing to the corn stalks, cotton stalks. That was my audience. And I would, I would pretend to do that. I guess I developed some sort of, some sort of, I opened the door to my talent, I guess, doing that. How old would you have been at this point? Oh, geez. Uh, five, six years old, maybe. Oh, Just really young. I mean, I was too young to do any any work. Right. So, yeah, they could see me because I'd be standing on the wagon to you stay on that wagon. And I'd stay on the wagon where they could see me and, and uh, they'd be out on the field and they could see, you could see for miles out there because it was just flat farmland. Right. So this isn't work songs. This is a Louis Jordan concert. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I'd be out there singing uh, "Open the Door, Richard," and then and, and all those songs that 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 he did. And uh, uh, another big influence was my dad would get up every morning. His saying was, "I work from Kansi to King." In other words, from dawn to dark, he worked. And so he'd get up in the morning, five o'clock in the morning, whatever time it was, turn country and western on as loud as he could on the radio and leave. That woke up everybody because, you know, it'd be Tex Ritter and uh, Roy Acuff and all of those old country guys, you know, Gene Autry and all those guys would be blaring at at five o'clock in the morning. Everybody got up, girls started making breakfast and that started our day. But I liked some of those songs Mm -hmm. because it was just music to me. And I, I told people, later on in life they said well you do so many different types of music in my own show it's because to me it's it's simply you break it down it's sort of like it's just notes you know if 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 they're put together in a way that pleases me then i'll sing it it doesn't matter what genre it is Mm -hmm. you know well i think over time people have just wanted to put things into different cylinders yeah and all of a sudden everybody's divided but yeah but there was a time when you could listen to radio and hear country and then classical and, you know, the old. And it all be on the same, on, yeah. on the same program. Yeah. Yeah. It was, and that was, uh, that was an era I grew up in too, you know, and, and, uh, but I look at it like now with the experience I've had in, 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 in my lifetime is that 
uh, it's just music. It's just music, and 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 you like what you like. Mm-hmm. And to be, I'd rather be called a singer than a blues singer or an R&B singer, uh, because I do jazz. Right. I do jazz. I do classical. Uh, I'm doing a thing with a symphony orchestra in October. Wow. So, uh, you know, it's just I love doing everything because that just opens up my my creative juices. So it was always that way when you were growing up. That yes. It was about the music that you liked as opposed to a certain genre. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there you are singing uh, um, for your family. And then how do you wind up in, you moved to Indiana at one point? We moved to Indiana because all of my sisters, all of my sisters were older. And they moved and uh, out of, I had six sisters all older than me. My youngest sister was six years older than me. So she went off to, to school. Uh, other sisters got married and they moved they moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana and set up a they all went to beauty school so they had this beauty shop so finally they go so dad was left with no workforce it was just me <laughs> being him and one sister so he said well I guess we gotta move up there with the girls so we packed up his best year ever as a farmer he netted a thousand dollars and that's what we used to move to to Fort Wayne and uh, once we got to Fort Wayne that's when my world opened up because I was in the city then so what was that like to come from a farm and then move into a city and how old would you have been I was 10 I was 10 going on 11 you know it's pretty close to being uh, we got there the winter of when I was 10 years old uh, 1950 the winter in, and I turned 11 uh I was already in school when I turned 11 and, and, but those first few, I was sort of intimidated by it because the city boys cursed and, uh, and, uh, and were you still coming from a a single room school? Yeah. yeah, Okay. So now you're going to our, our home back in Arkansas was kerosene lamps, uh, outhouse, you know, chamber pots for at night. I mean, it was really, uh, had a storm cellar that when there was a big storm coming, Dad would go down and kill the snakes and stuff out of the storm cellar so we could go down there when the big storm came over. It was really, if you swam in the rivers, you get leeches. You know what I mean? It was right. just like, but you live that life so you know what was- to do and what not to do. And so, uh, yeah. But coming to the city now, this was a whole different thing because I was intimidated by the kids. They seemed to be rougher. You know, they they weren't as as well mannered as the country kids were, uh, and but it it took me maybe four or five months. I made some friends, and and I got into the city life, and I love it. That must you have know. been a, a nice. I mean, when you're younger, you can adjust a lot easier. Oh yeah, but it must yeah. have been an interesting adjustment. Yeah, because well, the main big adjustment is I got to go to a school mm-hmm. that had classrooms. And different teachers, right? And a basketball team, and, a, and an auditorium, and and uh, uh, you know, art classes, and 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 all those things, which I looked at it, be saying, "Well, wow, you know, it was pretty cool." <laughs> did you like basketball? Did you did you fall I, in love I with sports? I played basketball. Yeah, I played basketball. I got, I had a a recruiter visit me, uh, to go to West Virginia, 
for basketball. Wow. He did a home visit with me. Uh, I didn't go, and I joke about it. You know, I said the only thing that kept me out of college was high school because my grades were just really bad. <laughs> you know, my grades were really bad, but I was singing at the time. I started singing as a, as a sophomore, and we were getting paid. And this would have been what kind of music, and what were you doing? Oh, we were doing doo-wop at that time. Okay. Frank and Lyman and the Teenager songs and, and the Cadillacs and the Span the Spaniels and all of those tunes. Uh, Playing in where? where? Where would you entertain? Here's, here's how we did it. We got together in, in uh, my friend. I lived above a novelty store. Our apartment was above a novelty store. But down below in the novelty store was a guy named Marvin Smith, Sweet Louie, who was part of the Checkmates. So... He was down there in the afternoon, so after school, we would all go down there and hang out at his place. And we started singing doo-wop songs. He was a bass, I was second tenor. We had another guy, Jimmy Milton, who was first tenor. Bobby Stevens, who was baritone. And so we would sing, and we had a real good harmony blend. And so we did a talent show, and there was this one kid, this white kid, Harvey Trees, that played guitar. So he goes, Hey, you guys want me to back you on some of these songs? Yeah, man. Great. So he backed us up. We were doing free shows, right. uh, the Chamber of Commerce shows and, and all those sorts of things. And so then he said, well, I know a guy who plays bass. So he brought in this bass player, and I knew a guy who was just learning drums. The bass player was Bill Van Buskirk. Uh, Cal Thomas was the drummer. And so... So we had a trio to back us up. So now we were doing high school dances. And man, the <laughs> girls, it was great. <laughs> I have to tell you, that theme of the girls comes up many times it when I talk up, to musicians. You know, that was the motivation. So are you making money at this point or not? We were getting $5 a night. Okay. Now this is 1950, uh, 56. We were getting $5 a night. Okay. It doesn't sound like much money, but for us, you know, I still got an allowance and I still had another little job. I cleaned up my sister's beauty shop. and I made a little money doing that. So, yeah, I always had a, some change in my pocket, you know. And musically, where were you getting the material from? Was uh, it radio, basically? The radio. They had a program that came on, uh, say, maybe eight or nine o'clock at night called Randy's Record Shop. KDIA out of Memphis. And it was a 50,000-watt 50, 50, station. And so, but it only came on at night. Mm -hmm. So we would hear all the R&B stuff. You know, we'd be all R&B stuff. I think that's probably the first time uh, I heard B.B. King. He was, he was a, a DJ, he was a DJ yeah. on, that, on that station. Uh, yeah, so uh, we would all get together. And a bunch of the kids get together and we'd hear that and we'd dance together and all that kind of stuff to the radio. So that exposed me to, to that. And uh, after I got old enough to get my own record player and start getting my own record collection, uh, I just really was in a total Johnny Mathis fan. Oh, interesting. I learned to sing ballads by Johnny Mathis because I'd get the speakers right close to my ears, like, like a headset. And we had the stereo speakers. I'd put yeah. them right while I was in my bed, you know, just... And I could hear him breathe, so I could I could kind of see how he was breathing through the phrases he did, and I just absolutely copied this guy. 
<laughs> I was doing all of those songs, Chances Are, and and Wonderful, Wonderful, and all those tunes. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, as just like I would say, maybe guitar players would study all the other guitar players and learn every lick, you know, right. that's the way I was with singers. Do you remember how much uh, a 45 single was back then? 49 cents. 49 cents. 49 cents for that. And, and an album was maybe, I don't even think there were three bucks for an album. But yeah. And, but you couldn't copy them. No. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't do like, okay, like they do now, that's would kill this business. But yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, everybody had their own record collection. Okay, so now you're you're playing in high school dances with a band, and are you thinking this we, is... We were called the Fort Wayne Continentals. That was the name of our band. And working a lot? Working a lot. Okay. I mean, we were really popular. We got to the point we were doing, because we were in Fort Wayne, Indiana, we were doing uh, high school dances in Ohio, in Michigan, called the Tri-State era, area. Right. And so... Uh, yeah, we would take the weekend, man, and jump in the car and and uh, had a station wagon with with the with the amplifiers and stuff in it and the drums, and we go do these teenage dances. And sometimes they would pay us a hundred bucks, so we had gas money to get back. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but we weren't so, doing it for the money, though. No, but at this point, are you thinking this is what something I can do for my life, or are you thinking this is just a hobby? Didn't think that far. Just didn't having think a good that time. We were just having a great time doing this. And so then we're sitting there one day, and, and Bobby Stevens, who was pretty much our, our leader of the band, he says, They got a buddy plan for the Army. So if we all join the Army, we can all stay together and we can keep our band together because they'll put us in the same post we'll, at the same base. Right. So, okay. So we went and joined the Army, and uh, we ended up in Fort Lewis, Washington. And uh, and uh, we sort of did our three years because that was that was the term that you did when you volunteered. We did our three years and we got out, and we performed while we were in the service. We were in the entertainment division, and my job there was I would check out instruments to the other soldiers that would come in, and and so I would check the instruments, make sure they got repaired when they were broken, and kept them clean, and that was my job. Good job for the Army. It was a great job, <laughs> except when they'd pull me out sometimes, mandatory uh, Army games where you go lay in the mud for... <laughs> I hated that, but... <laughs> you mean the actual Army thing? Is it, yeah. You mean I got to really do this? <laughs> what was it like living in Washington? It rained all the time. Tacoma, Washington. Right. It rained, I would say, nine months out of the year. It was just rainy. It's a rainforest, yeah, yeah. basically. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, but I really liked the era, the, the area. Uh, we could work, it was an open post. That's why we chose it. Because you worked at four o'clock and you didn't have to get passes to leave. You could just leave. I mean, you're off duty. We could go into Seattle and Tacoma and, and just be back in time for that the, the first call in the morning, you know, but by the time you could do what you wanted to and stay out as late as you want and everything. So, so we liked that. So we started doing jobs at nightclubs. And, uh, and then we started making pretty nice money then. So on a, as a side business, I was a loan shark. 
Good. <laughs> so I would loan money out, you know, five bucks for 10. I mean, it was really, really high interest rates, <laughs> ridiculous <laughs> interest rates, but five for 10, 20 for 30. You know what I mean? It was yeah. just very simple. And well, how, how did you even come up with that idea? Like, how did you decide that you would do? Because that's, that's what loan sharks did. It was like. Oh, no, I understand that. But I, I just like what made you. I had become... extra money. And guys go, man, you got extra money, man, man. Listen, let me, let me, let me ten bucks. I'm gonna get a carton of cigarettes. Let me five bucks. And said, well, you know. And so I said, okay, five for ten. That's the way it was done. So I had a guy who was heavyweight champion of Europe, in, in the service. He was my collector. So payday. I told him, you get ten percent. So payday, <laughs> he would go collect the money. And I guess people would pay. Oh, they had no choice. Right. <laughs> he would take it. <laughs> but, you know, but it never was really like that. A few guys would right. try to challenge him, but they found out that he wasn't going to, Alonzo was going to get the money. So, and if you wanted to borrow again, you had to pay because otherwise, you know. But anyway, that was just a side thing. So I bought myself a little nice Cadillac. And uh, how much was a Cadillac back then? Do you remember? I got that car for, I think, 700 bucks. Wow. It was used, but no. The Cadillac? Yeah, it was about 10 years old. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I love that car. And uh, got around to gigs doing that, you know. And uh, But basically, when we got out of the service, uh, we worked around Seattle and, and Tacoma and that whole Washington area and uh, Portland, Oregon, and all that stuff. And then finally, we got an agent who says, uh, I'll bring you guys down to L.A., so we went down to L.A. and uh, we worked L.A. at uh, the Whiskey A Go Go was just getting started and all that kind of stuff. So we'd come in there and we'd be on an off night. You know, nobody knew us, but people liked us because we performed. We had a show. That's right. What year would this be around? Uh, 60, 63, 64, somewhere in that area. Okay. Uh, but then the thing that happened, well, actually... It was before then because uh, we were playing in Salt Lake City and the guitar player was going with this girl whose dad was a, an attorney that worked at, had some clients in Vegas. So he said, I'm going to see if I can get you kids an audition in Vegas. That's what got us here. We came here, we did the audition, we failed it because we didn't have a show. And so the guy said, get a show, come back, we'll hire you. So we came back, uh, and the rest was history. We came back and... Can you explain? So when you, when they said, get a show, what did that mean? Like, what did you, what here's, did you have to... Here's what lounge, lounge was. Back in those days, you had to have a lot of... You had to be good with the audience. Mm -hmm. You just couldn't stand there and play songs. You know, that's what dance guys did. Uh, you had to have comedy. You had to have skits. You had to do uh, all sorts of things like that. So we had a trunk full of... Uh, stick horses with cowboy hats. We'd do a long came Jones and we'd be riding around the room uh, doing the stuff. People loved it. And uh, and I presume this is mainly trial and error. You would do things and we just see make how it up. Yeah. We, we did a skit where we uh, we did Sonny List and Muhammad Ali. At that time, he was Cassius Clay. Of course, I was Cassius Clay. Then we got the shorts and the gloves. And 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 everything, and we did a comedy boxing match. 
you know, you just made it up. Every weekend you had to come up with something. Can you, okay, so can you also maybe paint a picture of what Vegas was like back then? Vegas was, it wasn't very big. I think there was like nine hotels on the Strip at that point. You know, it was a lot of open spaces. Right. And, uh, and so when we came here, our, our first, we were working at a place called the Pussycat Agogo. We'd be on one stage, on the other stage would be Dobie Gray. Wow. Sliding the Family Stone. Uh, they were getting started. Uh, uh, Spiral Staircase, but they were called the Fidalians at that point. Uh, but, you know, it was two stages. As soon as you finish on the other stage, uh, the other band would start at the same time. Garwood Vans, Pussycat and Gogo. And uh, two girls singers, I mean, two girl dances in the cages, like they did back in those things, you know, where they had their frilly right. uh, outfits on and they'd be go-go dancing while we played music. And they had a dance floor and the place was really, it was packed all the time. Can you describe the audience to me? Like, oh, the what? audience was, it was basically local people. Okay. It was the local people because it was like a dance club. It wasn't uh, the casinos where the tourists came in, but word would get around if you want to have some fun, go over here. And so pretty soon we were packed with uh, Sinatra, Nancy Wilson, Neil Sadaka, Jim Morrison from The Doors. Uh, I mean, the list just went on and on and on. Everybody who was, who was anybody would be at the Pussycat, you know. And this was just now you were like the house band, like you, you it was a, your gig to have. Or, yeah, yeah. We, so you, and, you and like we were you there. had a residency there. You would be an playing. interesting thing about that time was the um, Vegas was still segregated at that point, and so integrated to the point that that the black audience could come in, but there was a section they had to sit in. Now the odd thing about it is, all these people worked at the same hotels together. I mean, they ate together at the hotel. They they were nothing else was segregated, except in these seatings in showrooms and, and nightclubs, so and restaurants. So uh, the people would get up and dance together. Then they'd go and separate. So we were looked up one night, and there were some empty seats in the white section, and there were black folks standing in line. It was in the winter. It's cold out there. And we said, hey. Why don't you let the people move in here, expand it a little bit, do something? Uh, no, 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 we can't do it. No, we can't. We can't mess with this. So we said, okay, we're not going on. So, so we sat there, and pretty soon we sat there and sat there, and people got us in. Where, where are the checkmates? Where are the checkmates? We're not going on. He went, okay, okay. So he let people sit in there. Nobody cared. You know, everybody minded their manners back in those days. So nobody cared, and. From that point on, the next day it was in the paper, checkmates integrate the strip. You can't find that anywhere. Wow. Somehow they no microfiche, none of that stuff is gone. Somebody went, why would you put this in the paper? Because it makes us look bad. You know, I guess that's what it right. was. I can never find an explanation. But anyway, from that, uh, we were working there, and then there was a call on New Year's Eve. Uh, the, the club owner, Garwood Van, came over and said, uh, Frank Sinatra wants you to do his his uh, New Year's Eve party uh, at the Sands. So I said, but, you know, we, we're still here. He goes, 
no, you don't understand me. Frank Sinatra wants you to come over and do the thing. Frank says it, you're doing it. So we went over and did his his uh, party. And from that thing, we got a gig at the Sands. We started working lounges then instead of that that uh, go-go place. And how different was that to be now in the lounge? Very and- different because in the, in the uh, when we were working at Pussycat, we, we do three-hour sets. We would do three. We, we would just go. Sorry, three hours straight? Yeah. We, we, our, our repertoire was probably 150 songs. Can you give me an example of some of the songs that you're singing at that point? Uh, we would do everything from, uh, oh, geez, I'm going way back to, we do doo-wop stuff. And then we would do the early, uh, this was like 64, 65. Uh, we would do the, uh, uh, the R&B stuff that was coming out at that point, you know, because you could get R&B then. Mm-hmm. And so we were doing uh, doing that sort of thing. Jeez, uh, I can't, right now I can't remember the song titles. So, sorry, because oftentimes there's the world before the Beatles and after the Beatles. Any Did the Beatles have any impact on, on your Here's career? a funny story. We were playing at the Pussycat when the Beatles first came to Vegas. It was a great big deal. It was at the convention center, and it was a great big deal about it, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so there was a a columnist here in town that wrote, the Beatles should come see the Checkmates and learn how to put on a show. <laughs> because all they did was just sing, <laughs> you know. And Vegas is such a, Vegas was such a performance orientated right. place that just to stand there and, and, and sing or play you know, they wanted more, you know, um, so, but yeah, it was, we, we, we didn't get to go see him because we were working at that point also, so. So now you're 24, 25, working in Vegas, now you're thinking this is a career, or you're thinking... Oh yeah, yeah, I, I, I knew at that point. Right. You know, I knew at that point that this is what I was going to do. And this was a nice steady gig. Yeah, then Nancy Wilson came in, the singer Nancy Wilson came in and saw us. And she said, you guys got management? And we said, no. Next day, she brought her manager in, Jay Cooper. He came in. Uh, two days later, we signed with them. Nancy and Jay Cooper were our management. And from there, every time she did a TV show, she goes, bring my boys on, otherwise I don't come on. And so we started doing Mike Douglas show, Merv Griffin shows, Ed Sullivan. We got all the shows. So... Tell me, before you got the management, before you met Nancy Wilson, obviously you were happy with your career. You're, you're playing in the lounges, making decent money uh-huh. on, on a regular basis. What did you expect to happen? Like, did you have goals at that point to think that you would do something like record or tour? Well, or we yeah. Have... We, wanted a, a, we wanted to record. But the thing about us, we were such a show band that the record companies would come in and go, you guys don't translate on records. You guys are a show band. So our first thing we did was with Capitol Records. Capitol came in and uh, uh, they did a live album on us at Caesars. Right. They did this live album at Caesars. And, you know, I mean, it was, it was a live album at Caesars, not done the way they do now, where they they would probably take two or three nights right. and then do splice the best, it together right. and make the best thing. They came in one night, 
did did one show, and that was it. And so they made the album uh, from that, and you know, it was okay, but it didn't sell. It didn't sell. It just wasn't anything that they could really push on on top forty radio. And did you know that? Like, what did you think about that album? We were just happy to be on Capitol because we were thinking, okay, this is just the first album. We'll do a right. studio album next. And we tried doing a studio album to show you how st stuck on the idea that we were a show band. They, <laughs> geez, when we did this album, they, they brought in, uh, I remember Glenn Campbell was one of the musicians. Right. Yeah, he was playing 12 string on this. And uh, so they set it up like a bar. They had a bartender, mm -hmm. they had seating, in the studio, and we and we did the songs like that. They didn't think we could perform unless we had an audience in front of us. Hmm. So that went on until we finally. So we never were a big record act because until we got with A and M Records, Herb Albert came and saw us, and we got with them. And then we did a. Uh, uh, that's when the Black Pearl thing came. came. Okay, so. I'm interested why it would have been an album as opposed to single, because wasn't it more of a singles world back then? You would think so. You would think so. And and uh, we did a single, uh, Please Don't Take This World Away or some stuff like that. It was sort of a, a syrupy sort of song. Mm -hmm. uh, I sang it. And uh, it, it was a hit here in town. I don't know if they had any records to, to sell. I never knew anything about it because that was back in the days where uh, you never had a, an accounting of your sales. Mm -hmm. You know, you you never got that. What you got was what they told you. You know what I mean? So, oh, we didn't make any money on this thing. So, uh, you know, and during those times, the deal was uh, whatever expense was to record you had to be, the, the record company had to get that make that money first before they gave you your nickel a record of I mean, five cent a record or whatever, 25 cent for a album or something like that. Did something you get really ridiculous. Do you remember if you got an advance at all or do you remember getting paid? The biggest advance we got is when we signed with A&M Records, we got $1,000 a piece. Which is a lot of money back then, right? Well, <laughs> you know, this is 19... Uh, uh, let me see if we got that... that this was 1968, okay. 68, you know, so people were getting paid then. Right. And, you know, but at that point, I'd never had a thousand dollars all at once because we were working for hundreds, you know, you get two or three hundred bucks a week. Mm -hmm. You know, it was probably average money, you know, and uh, so. But did you think you would leave Vegas? Did you, was that a goal or did you think? We, we, we have it good here. We're playing all the time. You know, we're happy here. Or did you think? No, you know what? When we when we signed with, with uh, Jay Cooper and Nancy Wilson, we were a national act. We were all over the place. We played Tacopa in New York and uh, Latin uh, Casino. And, and we were doing all the supper clubs, all the top-rated clubs. And this would be usually you would do it like a week run in these? these? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you go there for a week and, and uh, sometimes two weeks. And... It's something you don't see anymore. Two words, held over. Mm -hmm. Nobody holds over anymore. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can do great business, but you don't get held over. Back in those days, you would get held over. 
and, and that, and that held over would be decided initially when the tickets go on sale or when you played the week and they say, hey, can you stay in another? It, basically, those situations weren't tickets. They were just people would, would show up, would show up, and it was like free. You could you could get in those rooms, uh, maybe eight ninety five or something like that. But that would be on your bill. You didn't buy a ticket. It would right. be on your bill when you when you got your bills for your drinks or food or whatever. And, uh, you know, so if you did well, if you were really making good money for the, for the owner, then they would hold you over, held over by popular demand. And so they'd hold you over for sometimes we went to places and we got held over for two or three months. How do you plan your life like that? <laughs> we were young guys. Nobody right. was married. Nobody was married. Uh, so you'd go to New York, and then you could be there for months. Go, go there until, you know, until it runs out, until, it, you know, you know, when time to move on. Right. The agent would hook you up somewhere else, and, and we got a lot of gigs that were really sour. You know, we got to, we got to gigs where the, uh, you walk in and go, no, 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 you guys can't play here, because you still had the racial thing. Right. You can't play here. How did that make you feel? You know what? We said, okay, well, we got a contract. I don't care what you got. You're not playing here. So we called the agent going, man. He goes, oh, that's something. Well, you know, uh, okay, hang here. That's when agents, it was just a ton of clubs. Mm -hmm. You know, it was there was no late night TV. It was just a ton of nightclubs. Okay, and people used to go out. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're not going to play Missoula, uh, Montana. You're going to move over to uh, Pocatello. And I'll have you there for this weekend, and then I'll figure something out. And that's the way you, that's the way we lived. And you're driving in a in a At station wagon. At that time, wagon, we were driving a station wagon, and pulling a trailer, a little five by eight trailer that we pulled with all of our gear in it. And did you love that life at that point? Sure. I mean, we were just young guys. Right. We were young guys, man, and we were just seeing the world and playing music and just having a good time, you know. And mainly in North America, or did you go beyond? Did you go to Europe? Or? No, the only first time I played in Europe was with, with Steve. Okay, because the thing was, uh, when when we got to be a nationally known act, the, the Checkmates, uh, when everything was going good as far as outside bookings, uh, we would play where the jobs were. You know, I think Hawaii, Puerto Rico was probably the only. Uh, places we would go that wasn't on the mainland. Right. And some gigs in Canada, you know, uh, we did Mexico City. Uh, yeah, we played everywhere, you know, and, and but we had three months a year we would do Vegas. Which you three know? months? Three months. It would be like, uh, okay, you do a round and then you do uh, two weeks in April and then you do another two weeks in June and it would work out to be 12 weeks. You know, and that's the way you book back in those days. You book weeks, you know, and right. uh, unless you're going to do concerts, if you did some concert stuff, we we did concerts with Sinatra and uh, Bill Cosby back in those days. Uh, yeah, you know, it was it was a pretty full schedule. You know, sounds like it was a full schedule. It was just a ton of fun, and like I say, being a single guy, man, it was just like, you know. It was the life. Good time. It was the life. Yeah. <laughs> Musically, tell me about Black Pearl. What you released before Black Pearl? Did you release a number of singles or? 
no uh we we tried some we we tried some you know i got some 45s at home that are pretty pretty bad uh but <laughs> but i mean we, we never had a quality producer you know and we never did it in a quality studio they had to write to get the good sounds you know we would the sun guy had a studio uh, that mainly they did uh broadcasting from mm -hmm. and uh and you know i started off the first record we made was on vinyl there was no recording machine right. they recorded onto the vinyl oh, direct to disc so they had a bunch of vinyl blank vinyls and and they had this needle that would record us and so if you screwed up they had to put another one on or <laughs> start all over again so it was a lot of rehearsing to make sure you didn't screw up and uh, but that was way back in the day. Okay, and then when you released these singles that weren't good, did you know they weren't good when you did it? Yeah, <laughs> I never listened to them. Okay, I never listened to them. You know, I I got most of those things now because I went on the internet and there were you know, stuff would pop up on eBay and all those places to say you know, an old checkmate uh, this and that, right. and I just get it just. So I'd have it for my history. Okay, so when you listen to it now, does it seem any better? Oh, it's even worse. It's, <laughs> it's hard to listen to, to the whole thing. Okay. You know, and... Uh, so the, then tell me about Black Pearl. So Black Pearl came about, Herb Alpert was going to produce us, and he was he was producing us doing some songs. Uh, he tried. He mm -hmm. just, he was too Herb Alpert for us. You know, we were sort of R and B, you know, different different field than the Tijuana Brass. So uh, he worked out this deal with Phil Spector. So he brought Spector in, and so they shared the album. I mean, they shared the label. It was Phillies A and M when, oh. when Black Pearl first came out. It was Phillies A and M, and her bought uh, Phil out, and so it'd be the next group. The next edition of it was just A and M records, and uh, because it's always going to be a big hit. And uh, but Phil came in. Phil goes, "Okay, first of all, this is my record. You guys are singing on it." And well, whatever. And what a character he was! I can imagine. I mean, the the movie, the movie was pretty much on as far as him being that sort of a character. He was just he was bonkers, but. But the man, he had his own sound that he did. And uh, to make his records was when we did Black Pearl, uh, the backside of that album, there's an album that that, that we did. Um, on the backside of it was the Hair Anthology Suite. Did you ever? Right, my friend has it. He was telling yeah, me about it. Yeah. It's an amazing piece of work. It's an amazing piece of work. There was no way you could get it played because it's like, 20 minutes long I right. mean, and more than 20 minutes I think it's almost 25 minutes long there's no way you're going to get that played on any station uh, so but but we did it and it was great and um, so but but doing the thing with Spectre we came in it was like when we did Black Pearl I had the flu we were working in Vegas we had a day off we went in to do vocals uh, well not vocals we went in to do the, the, the track and he had, had like 30 people there, 30 musicians. He told Gene Palmer, the drummer, bring the snare, 
uh, uh, Gene, could you bring your snare in, in, in here and in, in, into the booth? He brought his snare in. He goes, good, leave it here. I don't want any snare on this. <laughs> so so there's no snare on, on it, but it's so filled with... He recorded it with the 30 pieces. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy who piano player on it funny you get to this age and the, the name sort I told you the name sort of slips in and out oh I know that okay so uh so we did it he goes oh guys uh, we got to do it again he had three 16 track machines he would record it on one 16 track then record it again on another 16 track mix it down to the third 16 track and then he's open to do it again right so that's what that wall of sound was. It was just like, and then he would overdub other people in there. And so getting back to when I did it, I sang just so they'd have a vocal to right. to, to play with, uh, a work vocal. And I had the flute. So after he got it all done, he goes, lower the key, slow the, slow the tape down, so Sonny can do the vocal, do the vocal again. So I did the vocal again, um, singing, you know, and he sped it back up. Now I sound like uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks. I couldn't do it like that live. I could never do it like that live. So I said, I hate this record, you know, because it's not me, you know. He goes, this is the magic. We're gonna do another whole album like this. And I said, not with me, you know. You know, because I can't go out and and, yeah, yeah. and and sing it. You know, I feel like an idiot out there now. I'm singing. Goes, You're not the guy that made the record. Cause listen to you now. You know, so. Uh, but that was the song came out to be a big hit. So okay, so how did you feel when it became a big hit then? I didn't like it. Oh, okay. I didn't like it. He got us a lot of jobs, but. You could never replicate. I felt I felt like I was doing somebody else's record when I did it because I couldn't do it the way it was. Interesting story: we we're in Detroit, and we were doing the, the promo run around the radio stations with the song, and we passed by this nightclub that says, "Tonight, Little Sonny Charles doing Black Pearl." So, some nightclub guy. So we went back to see it. It was some like fourteen-year-old kid singing it just like the record. <laughs> Because <laughs> his voice had, so I looked at him and went, okay. So you could never execute it properly live? I, I could sing it note for note. You know, I could sing it, you know, because it was me singing it, I could do it. But I didn't have that voice. The voice was different. Wow. It wasn't a little thin, uh, you know, they sped it up, so it was just a higher pitch. But this is a song that did very well on the charts, both in yes. the Billboard charts and the R&B charts. And somebody described it as a, like a black anthem. It was. It, and uh, my understanding is it was the, it was one of the theme songs for the Miss Black America contest for years. Hmm. I don't know. Like I said, that was back in the days. I never got any accounting for it. I never got paid. I got the $1,000. That's all I ever got from A&M for that record. Oh, Nothing else. Uh, several times I, I tried to find out, you know, give me an accounting. They said, well, so far you still owe us $49,000. I said, you've re-released it four times. 
well, we're, we're losing money on this. Said, you don't re-release something you're losing money on. I'm not, I'm not that dumb, but you know, that's the way it was. That's the way it, I guess it is now, but you know. Record companies, in my opinion, got what they deserved. They screwed over everybody and now, you know, they're having, a, they're having it rough. Because now the music is free. Mm-hmm. Tough for us, the singers and, and, and songwriters, you know.